Thank you very much. Um, well, as you perhaps know, I'm not a Russian scholar. <coughs> I hope I'm not telling you things you already know. Uh, though perhaps that is partly the work that needs to be done, that we get some kind of common understanding of what, what the basis is from which we can go pr- proceed. Now, I'm coming at this from Diderot. So I'm coming at it from a very restricted angle. Uh, As has been indicated, there's a major Diderot archive in St. Petersburg, and I shall explain while it's there. But at the end of the talk, I do hope to pick up a little bit of the questions in my title. Um, Because when you're doing the kind of intellectual history that I've been trying to do, you do have to constantly ask, is this zeitgeist, these funny coincidences, is it... Is it an accident, or have I discovered one more bit in the puzzle, and there is somebody who's going to crop up at the end and whom I thought I would be able to talk with a great deal more about, and I can't, and I'm going to encourage people, if they will, to go and try and work on him in St. Petersburg, because I think that's where some of the key might be. Anyway, I haven't got the key, right? This is a puzzle, not a key. Now... um, These questions, I've implied, point to one of the real problems arising in intellectual history. Have you just got certain ideas in the wind? Are they in the atmosphere? And do they just blow in at a particular point in time, like the fungus doing damage to our ash trees at present? Or do they just happen to be on our boots? Are they, do we bring them along with our particular educational and cultural equipment? Well, perhaps we might try and think about those questions anyway. There are no answers, obviously. Now, Diderot left Paris, bound for St. Petersburg, on June the 11th, 1773, and it's not accidental, he did it not long after the marriage of his only surviving child. He travelled to The Hague, where he stayed nearly two months with his friend, the Russian ambassador Dmitry Golitsyn. And he stayed with the Golitsyn on his way back as well. And to my mind, Golitsyn could do from the French angle with a great deal more attention than he has in fact got. Um, he had extremely interesting visitors while he was ambassador in, in Den Haag. And this has been looked at in the past, but it needs bringing back. And there is a, um, there's a lot of work that could be done just in Holland. Um, but I imagine, in fact, I've been told that in St. Petersburg there's a great deal more. Right, well, Diderot was guided by Narishkin, a chamberlain in the court of St. Petersburg, whom Catherine the Great, Empress of all the Russias, had sent to help him on his journey. Now, Narishkin is himself an interesting man, and again, from someone coming at it from my point of view, quite hard to find out about. But I suspect would be worth some investigation. Um, They seem to have travelled at least partly incognito. And that's another question. Was that deliberate? Is it accidental? What was going on? Um, Rumours circulated in Germany on their passage, Diderot being said at one time to have preached atheism publicly in some of the towns they traversed, um, which didn't... uh, I mean, people were expecting him to do this, so it's quite hard to find out whether that is exactly true. Um, They arrived a a few hours before the marriage of Catherine II's son, Paul, on the 8th of October, 1773, 
and Diderot already left St. Petersburg on the 5th of March in 1774. In other words, he really didn't stay very long, and he stayed over a winter. Again, a bit odd, you might think. Um, these were long and tiring journeys for a man who was not in the best of health. On the way back, in fact, they nearly drowned in a frozen river. They, they went over ice and it began to go in. Now, why did Diderot go? The main reason is money, from his point of view, and another, because he was invited. Diderot was not a wealthy man. Voltaire, another friend of Catherine II, had made himself a considerable fortune, partly by clever publishing of his own works, but mostly by clever speculation. He made a lot of money on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. Diderot, on the contrary, came from a master artisan family, and he had been paid, but not lavishly, for his back-breaking work as editor of the Encyclopédie. He'd also done something that neither Voltaire nor Rousseau did. He'd married, he had a family, which he acknowledged, because Rousseau, of course, only acknowledged his own family very late, and he needed money for their upkeep. Very soon on, he was tormented by the need to acquire a dowry for his daughter so that she did not suffer the usual fate of dowless girls and have to go into a nunnery. It's what happened to Marivaux's daughter, who seems to have been rather clever, very little we know about her. Now, those of you who have read Diderot's novel, The Nun, will not really need further words of explanation about why he was worried about her going into the nunnery. And if you haven't read it, do read it, because it's an extremely interesting and in some ways very funny novel. I mean, that's one of his oddities. <coughs> so he needed money. Why was he invited? Why he among the philosophers? Well, interestingly, as far as I've been able to discover, Rousseau was never contacted on behalf of Catherine II. It would be nice to know whether or not that really were true. But the Russo correspondence shows no sign of him being contacted. Voltaire, who was in correspondence with Catherine, by the time of her accession in 1762, wasn't merely 68, but he was also firmly ensconced in comparative comfort and safety in Ferney, a small village in France, sufficiently close to Switzerland, and thus the possibility of escape into another country should France become too threatening. And there was a whole problem. And he went and died in Paris, you see. And then there was a problem who we were going to find to bury Voltaire. So his nephew, I mean, it's hilarious. It's one of the funniest stories of a burial I've ever read, in which the nephew whisks the body out of Paris before any of the people who might like to throw it into the common sewer could get their hands on it. Voltaire, I might remind you, had actually done time in the Bastille much, much earlier. He was a correspondent of Catherine and he acted as an occasional headhunter in the modern sense. Diderot, on the other hand, who had also been in prison, though much later, uh, and in prison not for satire, but for publishing an atheistic work in 1749. Diderot did not have the social status that Voltaire had, nor the aristocratic backers that Rousseau possessed. I mean, this is something I think we need to own up to in the French students in the Enlightenment, why there is a good deal of disparity in the treatment of Rousseau and Diderot, by the Parisians, anyway. Right, so who was Diderot when he was invited by Catherine? Well, apart from the Encyclopédie, which 
the publication had been frozen in 1759 and it only was continued in 1765 when the remaining volumes of print, about 10 I think, were published all at one go. Diderot's published work was not voluminous. Two plays accompanying theoretical material, speculative essays on scientific subjects, some mathematical papers, a bit odd you might think, and two letters, one clearly atheist, on epistemology and the other on art. Now, Frederick the Great made much of this relative thinness of production in an article which was published in a Berlin journal, um, more or less as Diderot was in, in um, St. Petersburg, um, and it's usually interpreted as intending to damage this article, to damage Diderot in the eyes of the St. Petersburg court. The usual explanation is that uh, of this manoeuvre by Frederick is that Diderot had not visited Berlin on his way to Russia, and in fact he didn't go on the way back either. And it's fairly clear that he, had, he detested Frederick. Um, what Frederick. The way Frederick managed his own reputation was he would hoover up um, clever intellectuals who were in serious danger, sometimes very serious danger, um, from the Sorbonne, which was, of course, a theological faculty at the time. He would hoover them up, get them out of, or probably help them get out of Paris, uh, France via, via uh, Holland, and then they would move uh, to Berlin. And there's some very, very interesting <coughs> people and clever people who were worth a great deal and much more study than they ever get, uh, whose fate that was. Now, what very few people knew, and Frederick certainly didn't, that Diderot was piling up material which, at his death in 1784, he left either entirely in manuscript form and undistributed, or else only distributed in manuscript form through a journal compiled by the man we're going to hear about, his close friend Grimm. And this journal, this manuscript journal, was sent round to the crowned heads of Europe. When you didn't know about this journal, when you had no access to the journal, and this was the case, interestingly enough, of most people in England, Diderot's work looks quite different. It looks much less interesting, much more inferior, much more like the picture Frederick is painting. So, beyond money, Catherine could give Diderot a kind of status. <coughs> Diderot's reputation is posthumous in a way neither Rousseau's nor Voltaire's is. And it's quite interesting. What was, he, what was he doing by going to Catherine? Well, he was going to thank her for money, for the money that she, for the paying of the diary, and in fact, more than that. But it's said that when he met Catherine, <coughs> all the time he talked to her in the conversations that they had, and I'll come to those in a minute, he only wore a plain suit of black. In fact, he saw her almost a whole afternoon, every four or five days. Uh, it started more frequently. It's, he, she did actually devote a lot of time to these discussions with Diderot. So Diderot, in some sense, was the sober philosopher. Now, I just remind you that such a figure, the advisor of the autocrat, had a weighty history then, and <coughs> will have a very difficult future. 
I'll just give you the story. An acquaintance meeting Heidegger in the 1930s on a train on his way out and back from Berlin after he seems to have relinquished any possibility of acting on the Nazi government. This acquaintance is said to have commented to Heidegger, Plato returning from Syracuse. For the past of this activity is a warning. Plato went on two occasions to Sicily to attempt to influence the tyrant Dionysus II. On the second occasion, some lives recount, barely escaping, and he failed lamentably in both occasions. It's also worthy of note when you're thinking, one is thinking as I'm um, of why Diderot or Diderot going, that other great 18th century French intellectuals of very, very considerable stature were invited by Catherine but would not go. The great mathematician d'Alembert, for a while, the editor of the Encyclopédie, refused a magnificent offer, pouring money at him, um, which was made immediately after her, acce- her accession to the throne. Now, her husband Paul had died, almost certainly strangled, as you probably, I'm sure you do know, by Catherine's lover and his brothers, but he died officially from hemorrhoids. D'Alembert is said to have replied to the offer with, I am prone to piles too. They take too serious a form in that country, and I want to have a a pain in my backside in safety. Now, in a sense, Catherine needed Diderot, as much as he needed her financial support. Now here I feel I'm treading on eggshells. <coughs> D'Alembert's remarks show that among this kind category of French intellectual, the assassination of her husband was widely known. What impresses me is that she seems to have had, I don't know whether it's her or her advisors, a strategic sense of what was possible, what kind of place she could create for Russia in the European intellectual world. And whether through luck or judgment, and that could be determined, I'm sure, if we look at those she invited or those she gave salaried posts to, her choice is extremely interesting and of very high quality. The great mathematician Euler, for example, was in St. Petersburg. And I shall very shortly be talking about a favourite of mine, um, Kasper Wolf. So I'm going to talk about two cases of this um, acumen in choice. Uh, First of all, uh, uh, an Italian composer, Tommaso Traietta, whose work Diderot definitely knew. Then a German biologist, Kasper Wolf, whom, and here we get to the point of my title, it really would be very odd if Diderot had not at least heard of Kaspar Wolf while he was in Petersburg. And if he had, if he did at any point have the possibility of contact with people who knew Wolf, then one of Diderot's masterpieces, Le Rêve de D'Alembert, begins to look slightly different. And uh, uh, I thought I would be able to settle this uh, from you, from London and Cambridge, um, it will have to be looked at in St. Petersburg. There isn't the material in the rest, but it would be very, very important to know. Now, Trieta, a very, very fine musician, merely visited. He was master of the, uh, the, the chapel choir, 
Kasparov settled, the great scientist settled in Russia. Now, it's worth noting also, I think that amused me when I was working on why, trying to work out why Kasparov might have been invited, was that Catherine was described as a natural blue stocking. I'm going to read you a translation of the Chevalier Deon, what he said at her reception. She's never without the works of Voltaire, the De l'Esprit of Helvetius, the writings of the Encyclopédiste, and of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. That's quite interesting. You'd wonder if he got that right or what she might have thought of Rousseau. She is, in fact, says Deon, a natural blue stocking. Now, it's worth noting this reading. It what I think one could call left-leaning philosophers particular Helvetius, who maybe, I think, must be said to have had a large influence on the intellectual history of Marxism, a reductive, certainly not very democratic, view of government as household management. And Helvetius argued, to Rousseau's, uh, to Diderot's great despair, Helvetius argued that men could be trained to do anything. It was all in nurture. In some ways, of course, that's liberating, but unfortunately it's very obviously not true. Now, only nine days after the coup d'etat that brought her to power, the former chamberlain and former lover of the Empress Elizabeth, Shuvalov, wrote to Voltaire suggesting that the Encyclopédie might like to move its centre of production to Riga. Voltaire passed on the invitation, rejoicing in the slap in the face that this invitation represented to the prison authorities. And the prison authorities, poor souls, were in a terrible mess because they knew perfectly well that A, there was a lot of money tied up in the encyclopedia, and B, it was awaited very eagerly by just about everybody, uh, every intellectual in Europe, even if they disapproved of what it might say. But at the same time, they didn't want to upset the Catholic Church too much. So they were in a... a Voltaire was quite right. It is a slap in the face for the the Parisian authorities. He also pointed out in his passing on of this invitation that there is a kind of renaissance going on in Russia. You you might want to go. It's really more interesting than you might think. Now, Diderot said rather pointedly uh, that Frederick was there before the Russians and had tried to bring over the Encyclopédie to Berlin. And he also pointed out, and this sounds like... um, sort of right thinking, but it was a political correctness, but it wasn't at all coming from, from, from Diderot. He pointed out that, in fact, the manuscript of the Encyclopédie was the legal property of the publishers. They put the money in, and he had no intention of um, taking it away from them. Now, the problem of his daughter's diary. Catherine, working through Dmitri Golitsyn, who was then ambassador in Paris, heard that Diderot was seeking to sell his library for 1,500 livres to find the money for the diary. This offered Catherine a new way to make friends and influence people, and she offered 1,600 with the use of his library during his lifetime, together with a post of librarian or custodian at a salary of 16,000 livres per annum. And when she discovered that, as is the way with governments, Diderot had not in fact been paid... 
1766, I mean, those of us who tried to get money sometimes out of another European government uh, for expenses already incurred will know exactly what uh, was going on. Um, when she discovered that he hadn't ever been paid, she put down 50 years in advance. In other words, he got a further lump sum of 50,000 leave. And this completely changed his um, economic situation. So she had acquired the genuine gratitude of a philosopher in distress, and she went on to buy the distressed assets of a king. She bought from Gotowski, a Polish picture dealer, working out of Berlin, a magnificent collection of paintings he'd formed on behalf of Frederick. And this became the basis of the Hermitage. And Diderot was one, became one of her main artistic advisors, and he turned out to be very good at it. He performed two major acts of advice that I'm going to talk about very briefly. Um, first of all, the finding of, the, of a sculptor to make the statue of Peter, the First, uh, Peter the Great, Catherine intended to erect. Now, it seems to have been Diderot who was the first to have had the idea of asking a sculptor called Falconet. Golitsyn, the ambassador, had tried various famous, some far more famous sculptors, and they asked far too much money. Um, Catherine was obviously quite careful. I find this rather endearing. And um, they drew back. They, they, she wouldn't pay. Um, now, the idea of um, asking Falconet is not at all as obvious as it might have seemed. No, we, we have to go back. Yeah, that's one. Is it? I'm sorry it's so small. There's no way of... Um, well... I can, we'll have to. It's uh, a Pygmalion. It's a very, very famous uh, one, cited rather ad nauseum in relation to um, 18th century epistemology. It's the sculptor Pygmalions who turn, where his statue turns into a woman. The thing is, it's decidedly small scale stuff, which you can't see from that. It's really not a large statue at all. And it barely, shows, barely presages what Falconet did, which is the great statue of Peter the Great, which I've never seen it, but it seems to be acknowledged as a magnificent and gigantic masterpiece. Now, Diderot became active as a buyer of paintings for Catherine. First of all, he bought a collection, a very wonderful collection, which was lost at sea, then he bought part of one of the most famous picture collections of all time, Pierre Croza. And he, he, he did only was what, what was what. He is, of course, a great um, uh, critic, art critic. Well, if you didn't know that, he is. And you read his salon and convince yourself of it. So when this collection, Croza's collection, came on sale, we are told Diderot sprang into action. Comme sa tête est un volcan, il me dit tout de suite, l'impératrice ne pourrait rien faire de mieux que de prier monsieur votre frère, Tranchin, le voyage, de faire le voyage de Paris pour examiner et apprécier tous ses tableaux. Et quand une grande princesse qui a autant de déviations demande un service à un particulier, elle lui fait un remerciement digne d'elle. So he got part of one of the very most famous picture collections ever. And she acquired 
a great tear. She'd already acquired some through her ambassador Golitsyn. She acquired more Rembrandts. In particular, she acquired a Giorgione, which for picture, people who are interested in the history of art, it's a very interesting matter. But she, uh, they bought the Giorgione for her. He has a very small production, and so it's very hard to see. And he's extremely important, both historically and as a very fine painter. Um, <coughs> So finally, somebody calculated Diderot had been ambitious, uh, active in the acquisition of about 14 or 16 Rembrandts. They were sort of, uh, whether they're, they're all, I mean, the Getty has a lot of Rembrandts, but uh, some of them are not Rembrandts. But, uh, so uh, Catherine very endearingly, um, very endearingly wouldn't um, pay for paintings that had even a smell of inauthenticity, if there was some doubt about who they were by. She wouldn't pay for them. Now I'm going to turn very briefly um, to much less well-trodden fields of research in relation to Diderot at Petersburg, but fields that I wanted to find out more about and found it very difficult, which is why I'm um, sort of boring you perhaps with this. There would be things to find out, believe me. First of all, the question of music, (coughs) the music that he might have heard at St. Petersburg, and how that might shape what one knows about Diderot. And then, as I said, the question of the great embryologist, Caspar Friedrich Rolf. Now, very briefly with music. To my mind, I mean, I could be shot by some people by saying this, but Diderot was much more musically inclined than Rousseau. Certainly he was deeply interested. He wrote on it all his life. And in particular, at the centre of what I would argue is his masterpiece, the Neveu de Hamel, there is a discussion of music. The word is a satire in the sense of being satirical, but also in the ancient sense of satura, a mixed dish, a stew. And at its heart, it contains a discussion of the new Italian music, then being developed in Italy and in Paris. This is now called, it's not really a term that's much used in the 18th century, but it's used by musicologists now, the reformed opera. Diderot calls it le style nouveau. Now it's found, and I'm going to throw names at you, in the comic operas of Duny, Philidor, and other comic writers, less known Gretry, for example. But Diderot and others were calling for this style of music to be used in serious opera. And the French composer Philidor produced a serious opera, Anna Land, which has never really been performed since its semi-failure. And it was precisely using this style nouveau with a serious subject. And um, I have a bibliography, which I'm very willing to pass on to you, um, if you look on YouTube under Elna Land, you can actually hear some of this music. It's fabulous. I mean, there's a whole sort of project that needs rather a lot of money to try and put something like the original Elna Land together and perform it. Now, interestingly, in the manuscript of Diderot's Neveu de Hamel, where he's giving a list of the musicians who are working on this Stil Nouveau, he adds Trietta. And Trietta is radically underrated still, to my mind, today. 
<coughs> again, if you go to YouTube and Google on Trietta, you can hear some of the examples. Um, it is very fine, and it is this Italian style used in serious opera. Trietta wrote two Antigone, and the second one was written for St. Petersburg. So what we're, the picture we're getting is certainly of music. He took over in St. Peter's from, uh, Petersburg from an Italian composer, to my mind not nearly as good, called Galuppi. And there's a quite clear interest in St. Petersburg in this new bang-up-to-the-minute style of music, which was developed in... They're mostly Neapolitan um, composers, but it was certainly developed in Palma, in the court of Palma, and then it develops in Paris... Uh, and f- it becomes what we know as Mozart and Berlioz, later as Berlioz. I mean, it is crucially important in the development of music. Now, the other item, which I thought was my great discovery, and which I hope very much somebody will go and look at, is the embryologist, Caspar Friedrich Rolf. He was made professor at St. Petersburg in 1767, as I said, on the advice of the great mathematician Euler, just as well because of Wolf's views on reproduction were not of the kind to obtain him university posts in Germany. It's interesting that he's a person, uh, a scientist, whose reputation is much higher nowadays through the efforts of historians of science than it was in his own lifetime. Mm. Though having said that, somebody ought to go to the Royal Society and check that people weren't corresponding with him. I mean, it's just (coughs) possible. And the archives of the Royal Society are well, well worth, they're very easy to use, so they're worth having a look at if you are interested in that area. Now, <coughs> Wolf had, was an absolutely remarkable experimenter. It's quite clear that he could conduct experiments which went very considerably beyond what most scientists of the time could do. And what he did was he was, all his work was supporting the idea of epigenesis, which briefly defined is the concept of reproduction we now have. The egg, after fertilisation, develops of itself. Now, to many, indeed most scientists of that day, this theory was thought to allow an organising power to matter, And if you allow an organising power to matter, it's materialist and possibly very likely, but not necessarily, atheist. One has to say that epigenesis has, of course, its own difficulties, as it does now, when we know much more about physiology and about neurology. And epigenesis, Wolf's idea, or Wolf's, many people's idea, or several people's idea, but it was... um, the um, theory of reproduction that he um, put forward most strongly, went against what was the common view of reproduction, which is so delightfully bizarre that, I mean, it turns me into gales of laughter. It's called (laughs) préformation. And it was held that the egg, or the sperm, according to which way, could be ovist or spermist, had in it a little tiny human, and in that little tiny human, you had a little tiny human, and so on and so on, like, like Russian dolls, exactly. Well, somebody calculated how big Eve, I think they did the calculation on Eve rather than Adam, would have had to be to contain the whole of human. But of course. But 
trouble is, in a sense, it's much easier to think of than epigenesis. The idea that matter can just develop and what controls its development is in a lot way a much harder one to contemplate. Now, Diderot's notion in his great dialogue, Le Rêve de D'Alembert, is definitely epigenesis. His spokesman, who is a Frenchman, the great Dr. Bordeaux, puts it forward. Now, the most important biologist of the time, Haller of Berlin, in fact, reading Diderot's early work, work published in 1754, Pensée sur l'interprétation de la nature, saw very clearly the relation between epigenesis and atheism. And he was a very sincere believer, and he said, good heavens, if epigenesis is taking us in that direction, it must be false, no. And he sided, therefore, with preformation. This theory, epigenesis, putting a force in the creative part into the creative part of nature really was something that scared people and it's very interesting that to what I think are now accepted as the greatest experimenters of time, one of them is a wonderful Scotsman called Robert Witt they were always on the side of epigenesis of the fact that this thing organises itself but uh, problem there was, well, this really does appear to be very, very materialist indeed, and they all of them had to be extremely careful. Now, Wolf was a brilliant observer. He was able to describe in great and convincing detail the embryology of the chicken. Now, what worried me is that some of what he's describing seems to me really quite close to things that Diderot talks about in the Rêve de D'Alembert. It turns out that it's close, but everybody uses chickens because they're quite cheap. So (laughs) the fact that you talk about chickens in this particular way does not mean that you've been in contact with Wolf. Um, Wolf investigated, Wolf held, and here I'm going to quote, organisms develop in stages by a gradual increase in the visible complexity of organisation rather than by a simple enlargement of already mature, though minute, organisms. So Haller was arguing, well, (coughs) these things, these Russian dolls, they're all there, we just can't see them. Um, Wolf held to something much more difficult, that they develop in stages by gradual increase in complexity. And he, the, the particular work that's important is he investigated the development of the chick intestine, showing that the organised develop from foliate layers. Now, I can't go into why that really was important, but it was a whole new concept of the way matter could develop, and his drawings are superb. And what I found interesting when I was reading this stuff is that he looked... He looked at the development of plant leaves too. So when he's thinking about foliate development, development through enfolding layers, um, he, he, he did the whole thing. He thought about plants and not just animals and not just about um, chick eggs. 
So what he finally says, really, is what we have is a kind of exfoliation, an unfolding out of where we never see the origin at its moment of formation. And this really, really upset Haller because he was looking for the heart, the beating heart, and he kept thinking he might just have found it. Haller insists that that heart is there, it's just invisible. And Wolf was saying, well, sorry, you know, you can't see it, how do you know it's there? Um, it's not accidental either that Wolf investigated accidents of, accidents of development, monsters as they were called. Now, the problem with Wolf's work, I mean, one of the problems, is it's still very hard of access. But his main publications are available, and anybody who's at all interested in this area, I think he would be very well worth looking at, in particular seeing if he had any contacts with people outside Russia. I mean, who, who, who could have known about this? Dieter actually went to a meeting of the Academy, so he could have met him. Now, it seems to me, if I thought... When I first read Wolf, I thought, hooray, this is something connected with Le Rêve de D'Alembert. He must have known about it. Unfortunately, no, you really can't prove that. It hasn't been proved, and somebody will need to go, as I say, and look at it. Because the Rêve de D'Alembert is a textual nightmare. It exists in several versions. It's usually accepted. It dates from 1769, but the ideas it contains pop up much earlier in letters. And Diderot went on, as he often did, modifying this exceptionally important and difficult work so that the 1782 was its first distribution, only two years before his death. Now, what is interesting is he left a manuscript version of it, but very unlike what we know as the Rev de D'Alembert. He left a manuscript version of it when, with Catherine when he left Petersburg. Now, is this relation of Diderot to Wolf through themes, just then an example of zeitgeist. Is this what the advanced embryologist was doing? Because Haller, with all his greatness, was not. He got on the wrong side, unfortunately. His religion got in the way. He is not right about these things. But, or is it possible there's more to it than zeitgeist? So there are a whole set of questions that are coming up. And what interested me was I thought that if one could actually illuminate a bit more um, the career of Wolf in St. Petersburg and in the Academy, one might, working backwards, actually be able to look at the Rêve de D'Alembert through slightly different eyes, and that would be extremely, extremely good thing. Now, finally, just to finish, the question of the enlightened despot. It's interesting. Diderot, on return from St. Petersburg, will write and rewrite an account of the philosopher Seneca's relation to the Roman emperors Claudius and Nero. And many years ago, a hippie student said to me about one of these works, it's about whether to drop out. And he was, as so often with students, he went straight to the, the colonel. It is absolutely right. These two works on Seneca are about whether to drop out. It's as if Tidro is justifying his attempt to influence Catherine the Great as Seneca had tried to moderate the tendencies of Nero, the tendencies to autocracy and tyranny. And it 
the fact that Diderot published twice on this theme, in a way at which his own daughter, who was probably the person who best understood him, said in irritation that she really couldn't see why he spent so long on Seneca. I think it's a hint of what the two Diderotists, anyway, of how, how much bad, bad conscience, <coughs> bad feeling there is about his relation with Catherine. He had, of course, already written about enlightened despots. He wrote the page contre un tyran, against Frederick, who, like Catherine, read the Annal of Tacitus. When he came back, Diderot put together something he'd already started, the Principe de Politique des Souverains, the first part of whose title is Note écrite de la main d'un souverain à la marche de Tacite a sovereign's writing in the margins of Tacitus. Right, now why might a sovereign want to write about Tacitus? Well, Tacitus is to a very large extent in the bit that Diderot is thinking of, an account of the terrible reigns of Claudius and Nero. And this, this piece by Diderot, I discovered rather by surprise that it hasn't really been well worked on um, is a kind of duo of successive voices. You've got Catherine the good dictator, Frederick the wicked, all written in a lapidary style as if Diderot is imitating or mimicking um, Tacitus. So we come, and it's very, to me very interesting, that it slides into something very quickly, into something much more like his Nuba de Hummel, where the problem of voice becomes crucial. It's very hard to tell, actually, who is speaking and whether we can rely on the person speaking. And finally, the last sort of really big piece of work that Diderot did was his contributions to the Histoire des Deux Andes, which is a multi-volume account of colonialism and imperial might, edited by Reynal. And in there, he urged, Peuple, ne permettez donc pas à vos prétendus maîtres de faire même le bien contre votre volonté générale. Peoples, do not permit even to your, do not permit to your so-called masters even to do good against your general will. It's a very, very strong statement. And I find, I find it interesting, the use of the word volonté générale, because so is a Rousseau, a Diderot coming back to Rousseau. It is a Rousseau, well, several people's term, but Rousseau is the person who developed it. So it's as if after having gone to Catherine, there is an increase. I mean, he's already, in a sense, worried about his relation with Rousseau. There is a return to notions of freedom and notions of not having even against, not having a good done to you if it is against your will, which is not the Diderot, in a sense, that one knew of in the 1750s. Thank you.